0: you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing to look at uh, church membership and what it it means to be a member of a church. And we've been using Acts chapter 2 verse 42 as kind of our launching verse where it says, uh, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And we've looked at devotion, we've looked at apostles' teaching, fellowship. Last week we looked at the Lord's Supper, baptism, which kind of corresponds with that. And we get to the last section of this verse. There's a couple things we'll look at before we're finished with this series. But the last one is the prayers. Not prayer, but the prayers. And if you go through the book of Acts, you see the early church prayed and and several times it's recorded. One of the ones that... uh, is interesting to read, is in Acts chapter 4. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this prayer to you. And I want you to just listen to it and listen to what happened. Verse 24 of Acts 4, it says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Notice, together. We're talking about the collective church. And they said this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's a pretty powerful prayer. In response, the whole place was shaken. And when I talk with a lot of folks about their prayer life, that's not usually how they describe it. Lots of folks, when it comes to prayer, they'll tell you, yes, it's part of the walk of a disciple. As a Christian, we need to pray. As a church body, we need to pray. But a lot of people, when it comes to prayer, they struggle. They struggle with exactly how, well, how am I supposed to pray. Lots of people, and you don't have to raise your hand if this describes you, but they say, well, I know I'm, I pray, and I get to the point where I start telling God about my needs. And then as I start to talk about my needs, my mind starts to wander about a particular need. And I start thinking about some other things connected to it. And the next thing I know, five minutes has passed and I forgot that I was even praying and I got to go back. And I apologize for, to God for losing my train of thought. And then I get distracted again and, and I kind of get all sorts of messed up. Not all the time, but prayer is just one of those I pray and I, I, you know, obviously not, he doesn't talk right back to me like I'm having a conversation with the person and sometimes I ask for things that I think are good and I think God would want me to to have these things or these things should take place, but I don't get the response and I know other things in the Bible about what it says about in his will and I, I just, lots of people struggle with prayer. So today I want to look at a passage of scripture that we're all very familiar with, hopefully the Lord's Prayer. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 6. We call it the Lord's Prayer because the Lord gave it to us. Although as we read this, it's more of a, especially in Luke, when Luke records it, it's a response to the disciples who asked Jesus, how do we pray? Now, if the disciples that spent years with Jesus had questions about how do we pray, and they probably struggled with it a little bit, it stands to reason why we sometimes do too. And so Jesus gave them a a, a pattern prayer. It wasn't something... I mean, Jesus didn't pray this. We know this because he says about asking for forgiveness. And Jesus never had anything to seek forgiveness for. But he gives this to his disciples. And by extension, he gives it to us. And as we look at this this passage of scripture that has what we call the seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer, it helps us understand how do we talk to God. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning in the honor of God's word as we look at the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9, we'll start there and we'll read through verse 13. Jesus said to them, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, I thank you for this This pattern that you provided. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, in each of our lives, encourage us to talk to you, to pray. And Lord, to see the power of prayer and why it was such an important thing, a devoted thing for the early church. And Lord, that it would be the case for Cornerstone as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The first thing as we look at prayer, one of the things before we even get into it, is I want you to notice the collective nature to it. Our Father, give us this day. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. The early church, and and, and by extension, early Christians, were very... They looked at the connection of believers. Their prayer life... It was, was more of the covenant nature of everyone. They knew what you know, was going on with this guy over here affected what happened over here. They were praying in a collective nature. We, living in the United States in 2018, we often are very individualistic. We pray about ourselves, maybe our family. We pray for other people. But the idea of praying about don't lead all of us into temptation. Lead us all, deliver us all from, from evil and forgive us, Lord. We often think forgive me, but forgive all of us to be well aware of everything that's going on, the collective nature. That's important for us as a church. To see each other when we pray, to think of everyone else, not just I'm going to pray for the needs, but pray for their sins. Pray for their confession. Pray for all of that. But as we get into the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus gives us this pattern, there are what I call the seven petitions. Not me. That's, that's somebody long before me. So we'll look at those. The first one. The first verse, verse 9, is the petition basically for God to make himself holy. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed, there's a word we don't use a whole lot today. Hallowed be your name. You ever, is anybody here likes to watch judge shows? Judge Judy? Okay, I see some, yes, and I see, I don't really watch them, but everybody's probably seen one or two. I grew up with the People's Court and Judge Wapner, you know, and they'd walk in and they'd tell you something, you're like, I remember that. But it's always funny, once in a while you watch some of these people that come into a, a TV courtroom, which isn't quite the same, but it's close. And they're a little flippant with the judge. You know, they think they can argue with the judge or tell the judge to be quiet while they finish. And, I mean, I've watched a couple of Judge judies and those. I mean, they don't really put up with it at all, do they? You know, they'll be quiet. And even in an official courtroom setting, when the judge walks in, what does the bailiff say? All rise. Right. So everybody stands up. When the judge says, you can sit down, you can sit down. How do you refer to the judge? Not, hey, dude, it's your honor. I mean, there's a, 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 a way in which you approach in a courtroom setting. And so Jesus starts his prayer. How do we approach God? And in these just two little lines, our Father in heaven, how would be your name? The first line is kind of the how we talk to him. And then the request, make your name holy. There's a lot that Jesus communicates. With the Our Father in heaven, he communicates both the intimate nature of God and also the transcendent nature. He starts with Our Father. We're used to that. Lots of people, when they pray, they talk about God being their father. But that was revolutionary in Jesus' time. Nobody referred to God as Father. You came to him as a deity. And there were ways you approached him, but never in the idea of he's your father. It was very much like that. if you approached the king, if you were the subject of a king, you kind of had to grovel. You had to put your head down when you talked to him. If he wanted you to speak, you could. If, if you, he didn't want you to speak, you shouldn't speak. That's the way a subject approaches the king. But the king's son doesn't approach that way, does he? The king's son can run in, jump in dad's lap. To him, he's not the king so much as he's dad. And Jesus kind of revolutionizes the way we can approach God with our father. And for many of us, we're, we're, we're kind of good with that in 2018. It's not as uh, hard a thing for us to approach God in a fatherly way, to kind of be somewhat casual, right? I mean, we pray to God. We don't have to – I mean, some people get on their knees and bow, and that's great. You can do that, but you don't have to. We pray, you know, before the meal. And, and, and some people, you know, they can they try and keep one eye open to see what's going on or whatever when they pray. But then the second part, in heaven, how would be your name? This is what we call the transcendent nature of God. The big nature of God. And the request is, God, make your name holy. Make your name holy in my life. Make your name holy in the the, the life of the church. Make your name holy in this world. In the Old Testament, we read about the few instances where people were in the presence of God. It was very life-changing. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he comes in the presence of the throne room of God he basically falls on his face and says I'm am de- going to be destroyed Ezekiel same thing It's this idea just with a brief glimpse of the idea of the presence and majesty of God everyone who's ever experienced that that we see they basically like I'm I'm ruined I am absolutely destroyed I can't be here it's that type of presence God make your name holy And so, when our, our, our first approach to God, when we start talking to Him, is, is to recognize God, the ultimate thing I want in my life, the highest priority I want in my life is for you to get glory, for you to get honor, for you to get praise, and do whatever it takes in my life for that to take place. That's how we open it. And that kind of sets the precedent or it sets the direction of the idea of our prayer life is that God, I, I want you to be great. And then we go to petition number two your kingdom come. God's kingdom to come. Now, in, in God's kingdom, it's both a here now and a future as well. Here now and that Jesus came. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He, his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, the good news, means that we can have a relationship with God right now. We can repent of our sins. I call on everyone. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. Be part of the kingdom now. But we also know this is still a sinful fallen world. There's still bad things that take place. And so the kingdom isn't completely here. Jesus Christ is still going to come back a second time. And so when we pray, that's what we're asking for here. What took place when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and they were kicked out, and in Genesis chapter 3, God already began to put into place the the mechanism of his Savior, of Jesus Christ coming. We want that whole story to be complete. We want Jesus to come back. I catch myself sometimes when I pray, I get focused on this world a lot, all of the problems and the issues of my life. And I catch myself, how often do I pray, Jesus, come back? You know what would solve a lot of my problems? If Jesus came back. In fact, that would pretty much end them all. So why don't we pray that more often? That's what John said at the end of Revelation, come soon. soon that's what the early church was focused on so much his second coming his kingdom coming let's pray that And then the next one petition number three for god's will to be done your kingdom coming in a close connection your will be done and this is the first petition that has kind of a qualifier on earth as it is in heaven And so when we talk about God's will being done, he says, all right, when you're talking about his will, here's a a comparison for you. You want it to be here on earth like it is in heaven. And we have an idea. How is God's will in heaven? It's completely – that's how it's carried out, right? There's no sin. There's no problems. There's no curse in heaven. So how it is there is what we want here. Now here, of course, God's will in a sense is always completed here on earth. God is God. He's sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his will here on earth so Jesus isn't saying that God, you know, be sovereign. He is. He's saying, God, what is the right thing to do? Have that be here, done here on earth, done in my life. What brings you glory? What brings you greatness? What brings you honor? Whatever it is, that's what I want to see take place here on earth. This is a humbling point of prayer. To say, God, your will be done is putting ourselves at the feet of, of God the Father, and saying, whatever you want, whatever brings you glory, whatever it costs me, that's what I want. And we say that a lot. Have you ever, you know, it's Friday night, and you're, you're, you're with your spouse, and you want to go out and get something to eat, you know, you'll go to a restaurant. Have you ever said, honey, let, let's go out. Let's go get something to eat. Let's, wherever you want to go, I don't care. You know, it's up to you. In Tennessee, there was a restaurant there named It Don't Matter, which I remember driving by. I'm like, why is there a restaurant It Don't Matter? And the guy said, because so many times, somebody answers, it doesn't matter where you want to eat. Of course, it went out of business, so apparently it does matter. you know. But say to your spouse, where do you want to eat? It's up to you. And then he or she says a restaurant that of all of the restaurants is the one that you're like, not that one. But you don't want to say, not that one. So you're like, well, okay, yeah, we can go there. What about? And you name some other restaurant that you probably should have brought up the first time. In other words, the approach is listen, I'm, whatever you want, whatever, wherever you want to eat, wherever you want to go, that's great with me. I'm cool. And then they tell you the one thing that you go, oh, what about McDonald's? No, I'm just. Yeah. Often, if we're not careful, when we say, your will be done, what we're saying, anything, and God says, all right, here it is, and we go, eh, yeah, that. You've called me to go where? You've called me to give up what? I have to go through this? God says, he said, my will be done. This is my will. Maybe it's not the the thing that you were looking for, but you said my will, right? These first three petitions, when we really understand them... God, make your name great, your kingdom come, your will be done, is putting ourselves at the mercy of God the Father saying, this world, this creation is about you. I am a, a player that you have brought into this, this great story that is all about you. Lord, what is my role? What is your will? What is, what, is you want, what is it that you want me to do in this world to bring you glory? And being prepared for the answer. We all kind of have an idea of what we hope the answer is. But sometimes it's not. Which then, of course, brings us to petition number four. Give us this day our daily bread. We finally get to asking about us, right? What's interesting about this verse, it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? You've probably read this, you've probably quoted the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Prayer many times. But this verse actually kind of was tricky for a while for people to understand what exactly was being said here. The reason why is because the word for daily, this is the only place it appears. For many, many years, this is the only place anybody ever saw it. Not just in the Bible. In all of of ancient Greek writings, this word that's used here is nowhere else. And so people, even in my, I have the English Standard Version, even has a footnote for for this, are bread for tomorrow. People kind of wondered. And then they found a piece of papyri, which is basically a piece of paper, that had this word for the first time outside of the Bible. And you know what it was, this piece of papyri? is a woman's shopping list. Ladies, are, you know you write down your shopping list, right? You know, what you got to go get at the grocery store. And this word was used about some of the stuff that you had to buy. And what it really meant was you had to go on a regular basis to the store and get your daily whatever. They didn't have refrigerators and freezers, and so you couldn't go at the beginning of the month or the week and have it stored for a long time. You had to go to the market on a regular basis. And so it started to put into context what we're asking for, give us this day our daily bread, our our regular needs. Think about it this way. You put yourself at the mercy of God, saying, God, make your name great, your kingdom come, your will be done, but God, I'm trusting you to give me what I need to carry that out. You know, if you have a job... And, you, and, you, and your boss comes in and tells you, listen, uh, you need to go to New York City to do something for the, the company. And you say, okay, that's, that's part of the job. You expect them to you know, give you the tickets to fly to New York City, right? You're not just on your own. Hey, I'm doing this for you. You give me the tickets, right? You provide what I need to do the job. Well, that's in essence what we're saying here. God, you've called me as a father, as a husband, as a pastor of Cornerstone, in other capacities that I, I, I try and serve your kingdom, God, then I trust you're going to give me what I need to carry these things out. As you, you put me on the path to, to bringing glory to your name in my life, it's tough some days. And there are things that come. Notice that it says daily bread. It means you come to God on a regular basis. You know the old joke that a, a wife said to her husband, honey, you never tell me that you you love me. And he kind of looks at her and said, you know, I I told you on the day we were married that I loved you. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. And nothing's changed. Some people are that way with prayer. I prayed, God, I asked for this particular thing when I first got married or first had a child or whatever. And why do I have to ask you every day? Well, because different things come into our lives that we need God to be involved in. I prepare sermons during the week. And I preach them on Sunday. So on Wednesday, I I pray about Wednesday. I got a lot of things coming up Wednesday evening, so I pray, God, give me time this morning to not get too focused on my responsibilities tonight, to make sure I have enough time to concentrate for a couple of hours to study today or to prepare my sermon. On Sunday, I pray, God, today I'm going to deliver it. Please help me to be clear, to not mess up, to not fall off the front of the stage. I don't ask that one too much, but you know. But with my children, things come in their lives day in and day out. And I pray for those things. I think when I get up in the morning, what is coming up today? Who am I going to see today? What are my responsibilities today? Maybe I'm going to come across somebody that I know it's going to be a difficult conversation or it could be awkward. God, really, I pray. Now, of course, I pray a couple of days in advance for those things. But we come to God regularly regularly. We think through the things that are coming through and say, God, this is what's coming up. And that's how we see God work. Because we get to the end of the day and we look back and we say, God, I see your hand in my life. Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, petition number five, for God to forgive our sins. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Debts here is another way of talking about sin. This is another one with a qualifier. Just like your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, forgive us our debts. How? As we have also forgiven our debtors. So we forgive, or God forgives as we forgive. This is a powerful little section, isn't it? Look at verse 14 and 15. I didn't read those, but this is kind of a a commentary Jesus gave on this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We're good. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive yours. It's a powerful little statement, isn't it? I mean, that makes us stand up and go, wait a minute. I see this this act of forgiveness. And God's forgiveness of me. One of the things that we see that Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 18, he gives a parable. He tells a story about forgiveness. He says, there was once a master who had a slave. And the slave owed more money than he could ever pay back. The equivalent of billions of dollars. And the master forgives him, he says, I forgive this debt that you can never pay back. And then the slave goes off, and that slave has a friend who owes him the equivalent of a couple thousand dollars. It's not chump change, but it's some money. And that slave, who was just forgiven a debt he could never pay back, goes to his friend who owes him a few thousand dollars and says, pay up. The guy says, can't do it. He says, well, then let's throw you in prison. They had debtor's prison then. Of course, word gets back to the master of how this slave treated his fellow slave, and he's irate. And this whole parable that Jesus tells is is, is about forgiveness. And he said, the master goes to that first slave, and he throws him in prison. He says, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Forgiveness, and the way we forgive others, is one of the clearest indications of, are we truly forgiven? One of the things I deal with with people is they struggle sometimes With accepting forgiveness from God. And often it's because they can't really forgive themselves. They can't forgive others. I mean, we're all gonna get wronged. Everybody in here has been wronged by somebody in some capacity. Well, how do you treat them? You may say, well, I forgive them, but do you forgive them and hold a grudge? You know, in 1997, you did this, I forgave you a couple of days later, but I still remember it and bring it up often. Maybe you're bitter. You don't really, you know, confront them on it, but you've held down to that bitterness and that anger with them. Now, sometimes people wrong us. There's consequences. You may have let somebody borrow your credit card and they racked up a huge bill, and so you've forgiven them. You don't let them borrow the credit card again. I mean, God is that way. We're forgiven. If I murder somebody, God will forgive me, but I still go to prison. But do we really forgive? How would we fare if God forgave us the way we forgive other people? That's a tough one. One of the things we ask for. One of the highlights of the prayer that Christ gave us. The final two petitions, Petition 6 and 7. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. God, don't lead me this way, but instead lead me this way. Don't lead me into temptation, deliver me from evil. Don't take me in the way close to sin. Just just get it out of my life. Now, oftentimes for a lot of Christians, they treat sin kind of like the price is right. Does everybody in here watch the the game show The Price is Right? Yes? No? Some people have. Some people haven't, which is amazing to me. But all right. There's a game show. The Price is Right. And one of the phrases that you'll always hear on The Price is Right is the closest to the actual retail price without going over. All right? means when you're guessing the price of something, you try and guess as close as you can. But if you're one penny too high, you lose. So if you're guessing the price of the guitar, and, and just this is around, it's 100 bucks, and you guess $100 and one cent, and somebody else guesses a dollar, who wins? The dollar, right? As close as you can without going over. Well, a lot of Christians treat sin that way. How close can I get without going over? I don't want to gossip. I know gossip is wrong. But how much can I tell before it's gossip? I don't want to be greedy. But how much money can I get before I actually go into greed? I like the window shop. It's not coveting, but I like to, to just really want something that's not mine. How close can I? Cause it's kind of fun, but I know I'm not supposed to do it. So how close can I get before I accidentally go over? Whereas what the final two petitions are saying: God, do the exact opposite. Don't lead me to temptation. The Bible says in James chapter one, God doesn't tempt us." And here we're saying, "God, please, this is a request I have. Please don't take me to places where I am tempted. Please don't allow me to get into situations where the temptation is so strong. In fact, God, deliver me from evil. Take me as far away from it as I can be." I think of one of the great, probably illustrations of this is, is Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. He still stayed faithful to God, and he ended up in the house of a guy. He was a slave to a guy named Potiphar. And he was a really good slave, so much so that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything in the household. He was, he was number two behind Potiphar. He could do anything he wanted except one thing. He had to stay away from Potiphar's wife. Makes sense, right? Potiphar left a lot. And the big problem for Joseph is Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. And she would try and seduce him all the time. And Joseph resisted. So much so, he tried not to even be around her. But one day, of course, it happened. He was kind of cornered, and there she was, making the moves on him. And he didn't argue. He didn't sit there and try and have a discussion of why they should do this or that or that. He took off. But in taking off, she got a hold of some article of his clothing and latched onto it, so he ran off and she held onto that. And when her husband came back, she showed him the garment, and, of course, he was furious, and Joseph was thrown into prison. For doing nothing wrong. Now I would imagine. And I'm just speculating here. But I would imagine that at times. Somewhere along the line. While Joseph was there with Potiphar. Living in that household. And Potiphar's wife was doing all of the. Trying to get him. That he probably prayed about it. Saying God it would be really nice. If she would quit doing this. If you could deliver me from this temptation. Now let me ask you a question. Did it happen? Yeah. He was delivered. How? He was thrown in prison. That seem right? Does it seem fair? Now, I know we all know how the story ends up. He's second in charge of Egypt and all of that, but he didn't know that at the time. And when you read through the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, the life of Joseph, it's kind of there, isn't it? God, make your name great. Your will be done. I put myself at the mercy of your feet, even if it means I go to prison. God, give me what I need while I'm there. I've been wronged a lot. In the case of Joseph, his brother sold him into slavery. He got lied about by Potiphar's wife. He had some people. He interpreted their dreams, and they promised they'd get him out of prison. They forgot him for a couple of years. I mean, he had some bitterness he could have. God did answer a lot of his prayers, but probably not in the way that he hoped when he prayed them. Prayer is one of those things that we have to go to the word of God and see what Jesus told us to do. And when we come to God, we say, God, this is, it's about your great name. Your will being done. Or give me what I need to live that out. I'm not always going to understand it. I'm not, it's not always going to make sense to me. Sometimes it's difficult, but but give me the strength to do it. Help me forgive and lead me away from temptation. I read that account of the early church the very beginning. And if you listened well, they talked a lot about the beginning, about the greatness of God and about how it's all about him. But the, the main thing that they requested was this. Allow us to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They were being thrown in prison. They were being persecuted. Some of them were being about to be killed. They were being put out. Of the synagogue. And their main prayer was God your will. Let's make your name great. Give us the power. Give us what we need to be bold.